So, happy Tuesday, everybody. How are y'all doing? How's the microphone level? Is it good? It's all right. Back in the back part of the room there. I think we're online. Okay. So, okay. All right, so let's see. So first of all, I'm glad everybody, y'all all came today. It's great to see everybody. You know, those um, people have been signing. These are the strength of service devotionals that the Methodist men do every year. And these are gonna go to first responders, police and fire here in the Metroplex to be delivered by the Methodist men. And all that they need is help signing them. So just put an encouraging word, a word of thanks. You don't have to sign your name or sign your name, whatever. Um, kind of, I guess it's kind of nice to personalize it. But then the Methodist men are going to get them to the police and fire folks. They've already been in contact with uh, fire chiefs and police captains. And so it's, it's happening. So they appreciate your help with that. And we're the only congregation in the country that signs and we're the only congregation in the country that signs these. We are the only congregation in the country that does many things. Some positive, some just weird. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, all right. So I had told you that we are coming up on a time that Patty and I will t are gonna take um, an extended vacation. It is our 25th, 25th anniversary summer. And uh, yay, yay, 25 years, 25 years, getting, getting to be married to Patty is a good thing. So now, wait a minute, Scott. Okay, these are, <laughs> I screwed up. I didn't, these are Mondays. <laughs> I, I, just, I just borrowed this from my Monday presentation, but I forgot, I was so excited I could copy it from one presentation to another on my iPad, I forgot to change the dates. Which means that it's Tuesday, July 11th, Tuesday, July 18th, and Tuesday, July what? 25th, there you go. Next week I'll have this slide cleaned up. I'm gonna leave it right there, but it's, it's those, those weeks. I'm, I'm only missing two Sundays, but it, the way, you know, we don't really, Guess what? We don't really control when the ship leaves. <laughs> so we're going on a cruise um, up, in, up in Norway. So we don't really control when the ship leaves. So it creates this thing where we're going to miss class for three weeks, but only miss two Sundays. So anyway, um, there we go. Yes. I'm sorry. Sorry, dear. Is the 4th of July a Tuesday? Yes, we won't have class on the 4th. I will clean that up. So essentially, July is gone. David's going to go into hiding again, and he will emerge after it's all over. But that is the way it works out, because I forgot that the... Yeah, see, 411. Wow, you're sharper than I am. So anyway, that's what's happening big 24th anniversary trip so that's about it for me is there anything that you guys would like to 
talk about before we plunge back into First Samuel. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody's going to have to come. Well, one thing you could do is to sign up for Country Western Line Dancing. The Second Act Ministry is sponsoring Country Western Line Dancing on Thursdays in July. It'll be fun. It's four weeks and it's cheap. Four lessons for 20 bucks. You don't have to be in couples. There's no couples involved in line dancing. Right? So, yeah, see, there's something, Doug, right there. <laughs> How's that for a plug, baby? Okay, anything else? You're going to miss them, huh? What? You're going to miss the line dancing? Uh, we're going to make the first one, but then we're going to miss the rest. Sadly, I would be, it would be fun. It would be more fun for people. I mean, I'm really terrible. So at that kind of thing. So that that's fun for everybody else. So, yes. One other fact, Scott, is that Norway has the highest adoption of electric cars in the world. Eighty percent of the new cars sold are electric. Eighty percent of the new cars sold in Norway are electric. Wow. It's because they that's because they don't have anywhere to go. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> Nobody's driving long distances in Norway. I'll tell you that. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, shall we pray? We'll just, we'll just pray and open this thing up. All right, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We're grateful to be here on Tuesdays. We're going to resume our journey through First Samuel, and we pray that you will um, fill us with lots of energy and enthusiasm and questions and things as we try to dig into these uh, stories and enjoy them um, and hear your word for your people and your word um, for us as, as, as disciples of Christ. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends. Yes. I did already. Thank you. But really, Charlotte, thank you for reminding me about the podcast recording because I, I did that before I started, but that's great because I, I shouldn't need it now because this is working for me to turn the audio on before I turn the streaming on and I'm not getting people claiming that I'm stealing their music or some <laughs> crazy computer stuff, you know. These computers are supposed to be so smart and I'm supposed to be terrified of them and they're, so many times they're just stupid. <laughs> you know, really. You know, anyway, there we go. So we are in chapter 26. That's where we are. Remember last week, we did the story of David and Abigail. A great story. Abigail is a name that you need to know, that you should have committed to memory. She's one of the great um, heroines of the Old Testament. Saving David from himself saving David from committing just a terrible, terrible act in the, um, as his men were, were coming to kill Nabal and, and all of his men. And, and she stopped him from that. David knew that she had rescued him from, from, from that sin and that horror, and he married her, right? Because we found out in the closing verses of chapter 25 that he married Abigail, 
Um, they practiced polygamy in this world, and um, it was not. It became a practice. That as, as a practice died away as you get closer and closer to Jesus. In Jesus' day, it's all monogamous. But in this ancient world, this world that's closer to Conan, there, there is polygamy there, there, and it is a way of affording protection for women in a very violent world. I think that, that lies at the heart of it, is why in Leveret marriage, if um, a woman's husband died, she was the brother of the man who died, was obligated to marry his widow. And it's just, it, it, yes, it keeps the land together, it keeps a, it keeps a family together, but it goes further than that. So he's married to Abigail. He is married to a woman, woman named Ahinoam. Um, and though he was married to Michael, who helped him escape from Saul, <coughs> Saul has now given her in marriage to a man named Paltiel. Okay? Yes? I'm asked if Saul just took her away and gave her to somebody else. The answer is yes. Kings had absolute power. You don't have to ask yourself, how could the king do that? The kings, these are absolute sovereigns in this world. Remember um, from history class, you heard about the Magna Carta in 1215? What was famous about the Magna Carta is it was one of the first times that the absolute power of the king began to be taken away by the king's subjects. And King John, who signed the Magna Carta, was not at all happy about it. But, but this, is, this, is, this is a thousand years before Jesus. And kings had, kings had absolute power in almost every culture that I'm aware of at this time. Yes? Well, it doesn't really, okay? It, it doesn't. Polygamy was what? An accession to, to the nature of the world. How about that? But in, in the opening chapters of Genesis, there is a husband and a wife, and they become one flesh. And, and, but it, it, it's, it's, it's just a concession to humanity and the violence we live in and the way we view property and money. Really the same thing as divorce. Divorce is a concession to human sinfulness. That's why divorce is never to be celebrated. It represents tragedy, but there are many there's a lot of tragedy in life, and divorce is one particular kind. So it's not God's intention, it's a concession to human sinfulness. I think that's the best way to see it. But doesn't it say in the Bible about divorce that... Yes, yes, the Bible says many things about how we should live, but we don't, <laughs> right? We don't. So, for example, you'll find in, I think I've got this right, in Mark, when Jesus is asked about divorce, there's no exception. When you come to a gospel written 20 years later, there is. There is the exception is for adultery. It is very, 
it is a concession to human sinfulness. The Roman Catholic Church, which would never give on divorce, instead, how did they do it? What? They pretend you were never married. They you were never married. They pretend you were never married, right? So, so they would annul a marriage. It, it's all a the way to see it is a concession to human sinfulness. And of course, we could go through the scripture from beginning to find and end to find all these ways we should be living. But we don't. So how do we go through life? We go through life recognizing that we make, we, we make some, some terrible choices and we do sometimes do terrible things. And we have, to, we have ways of getting through that. But it isn't, it, isn't, it isn't God's hope for us. God's hope for me, Scott, I've been divorced twice for goodness sakes. How is that possible? That's what I ask myself, you know, and it was, granted it was before God really grabbed me, but I won't go into all of it, but anyway, <laughs> you know, I wonder how blessed would I have been if I could have been married to Patty since I was 23. Amen. Amen. Right? But I didn't. Mary Patty at 23, and she would have only been 16 or something at the time. So that might not have been the best idea. But, so, so there are these things that are just how life is. Not what God's hope is for us. God's hope for me is that I would love God and love neighbor every day and in every way. Do I? No. I don't. And the acknowledgement of that is the acknowledgement that there is something broken in us that we cannot heal ourselves and for which we need a rescuer, a savior, right? Who will redeem us. And that person is Jesus. But Scott, over the years you have told us many, many, many times that marriage was different back then than it is now. It was more about arrangements back then. Yes. So it was a whole different kind of thing. Okay, so, so Jim, you're right. So Jim is bringing up the fact that when I talk about marriage, we have to recognize that marriage has changed a lot. I have a small book. I, actually, it's a big book with the tiniest print anybody ever saw. <laughs> Hence, I've pretty much only read the chapter headings because it's all I can see. <laughs> okay, but it's a history of marriage, and marriage was different in the past. You know, the idea of marrying for romance, you know how... You know, marrying for romance, how old that really is? A couple hundred years. Eighteen hundreds. Emerged this idea where marriage should be something grounded in romance and violins and you find your, they wouldn't have used these words, but soulmates and stuff. Before that, it was largely arrangements, often economic arrangements. People didn't move very far. So in the village, boys married girls from their village and they had so they could have children and they could create an economic unit by which they would all survive so it has changed a great deal um, and sometimes we do need to very much keep that in mind but things like things like divorce they're concessions to human sinfulness. That, I mean, that's really an important concept because there are a lot of things that we have that reflect 
our brokenness, living in a broken world that are not God's hope for us. But we still, we still need them because we're making our way through this life, right? Anyway, that's okay. Any other questions? Okay. What? Well, see, Mormonism, which is not Christian, right? Mormonism is a different religion. It's like there's Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Mormonism. Mormonism is a different religion, but they practiced polygamy, and there are still sects within Mormonism that try to practice polygamy, okay? Very, well, people will call fundamentalist sects in, in Mormonism that try to, but they, they were pretty much forced by the government um, to give up polygamy when they wanted to gain statehood. So, yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Well, one of the things that with, with multiple marriages, you created more workers for the fields, too. And that was very important. Yeah, I mean, I mean, plural marriage would create more children. David ends up with a whole bunch of kids, a whole bunch of half-brothers and half-sisters by different wives and different women, and it would create a stronger economic unit. Think of it that way, a stronger economic unit. But still as a practice, the Jews ended up leaving poly polygamy behind. So when you come to Jesus' day, Second Temple Judaism, they were practicing monogamy. Now, the, the thing about the Jewish practice in Jesus' day that comes out in the Gospels, to, to divorce, um, all a man had to do was basically write out a bill of divorce and hand it to his wife, and that was kind of done, right? And so um, Jesus has a lot of things to say. It's so fascinating to me that when Jesus is asked about divorce, he doesn't really want to talk about it. What he does is he sends his questioners to God's intent, which is found in Genesis 1 and 2. That's what he does. He quotes Genesis 2 when he's answering the question about divorce. Because we should always keep an eye focused on God's hope for us. And um, that's how you end up being able to tell the difference between a tragedy um, and another case, another reflection of human sinfulness and God's hope for us. Okay, well, I didn't think we'd be on this topic today. I, I see it. I'm, this is what we come here for, I guess. Yes. What I, what I what? Do you know the, uh, excuse me, I'm a little uh, stuffy. The, in what book and verse does Jesus talk about divorce? Oh, gosh. <sighs> He's questioned about it maybe, maybe Matthew 19. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, it's not much. And the fascinating yeah. part is that he sends his questioners back to Genesis 2. Just like Paul. In Ephesians 5, which I know, okay, in Ephesians 5, Paul is telling the husbands that you should not abuse your wives. Now, it's not necessarily physical abuse, but you shouldn't abuse your wife because you and 
your wife are one. You are one flesh. And he supports it by going to the same place Jesus does when Jesus is asked about divorce. Back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So I, I hope it's Matthew 19, but it, are you kidding me? Gosh, I feel like I won the lottery. <laughs> Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Now remember, if you find, if you have a Bible with cross-references, it might tell you which chapter in Mark the same is the parallel passage where you hear, okay, you guys are so good at this, Mark 10. So I believe that you will find in Mark 10, there is no exception for adultery, but there is in Matthew 19, which means the Christian community is wrestling through how to live with all of this in light of their sinfulness, right? Yes, I think that's what's happening. Wow. Okay. One trivia thing, Last good. Last week I asked how many words Abigail had said, and I thought it was pretty long. It turns out she spoke 316 words versus number one woman that spoke in the Bible is Judith with 2,689 words. Who's Judith? <laughs> yeah, who's Judith? I mean, I, I don't know who Judith is unless, unless the person doing this is grabbing some book from outside the Bible. Well, I don't know. But anyway, yes, Abigail gets, let's just say this, Abigail gets, Abigail gets a lot of space. Okay, I don't know word-wise. She's the one that cut the king's head off. Okay, all right, okay. There is a gal in the, it's okay, there's a gal in the book of Judges who does lop off a fellow's head. It's in the book of Judges. I just can't remember her, maybe her name is Judith. Anyway, I can, what I can do is I can remember the painting of her lopping that guy. She, she does the lop his head off, she drives a stake through his head, right? I, I haven't been in Judges a while. We haven't really preached that story here at St. Andrew where she drives a stake through his head. one we want to hear. Yeah, for Father's Day, yes. Good Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Charlotte. Okay, so let's, shall we go back to Samuel? What do you all think? Okay, all right. Consensus is. Now, here's the thing that's, can be challenging about this story. There are enough similarities to Saul in the cave that some people would say, well, it's basically one event um, and uh, you know, one of them's true and one real and one isn't. You know, for my money, there are enough differences that it simply happens twice in the course of things because they really are different stories. It's just another case where you will see what, how David reacts to having the opportunity to get rid of Saul. So I am going to advance slides. All of it, wait, I got my, never gonna, you're not gonna pry this out of my cold dead hands. So. <laughs> It's all happening, this is all happening right in this center area, right in here. 
It's not a very large area at all. If you were in a car driving through it on the highway, you would like blink and you'd be on to somewhere else. So, okay. So look at chapter 26. Now the Ziphites, notice how, are there Ziphites on here? Okay. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which faces Jershimon? They tell Saul where David is because they're trying to ingratiate themselves with Saul. David is the rebel on the run, being hunted. So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp alongside the road on the hill of Hakilah, or Hakilah, facing Jershimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When David saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. So Saul and David are back in the same vicinity again. So David set out and he goes to the place where Saul and his men have set up their camp. So how would camps be set up? They would have a clearing and they probably are set up in a circle and they have watchmen who would pull shifts on the outside of that circle, right? Um, just as armies have camped since time immemorial. When you go to Masada and you go to the very top and you look off Masada to the ground below, way, way, way below, you can still see the outline of the Roman camps down there. They're square, not round, but it's the outline of the Roman camps. It's kind of wild from 2,000 years ago. So, David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped, and he saw where Saul and Abner, who's Abner? David, um, he's Saul's commander, commander of the army, a name to remember. <clears throat> where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. They're sleeping, it's night. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. So in this round camp, I'll call it round, maybe that's not the shape, we don't know. So where does Saul put his head to sleep? In the center of it, of course. The safe place. Well, David then asked Ahimelech, another name to remember actually, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Uriah, another name to remember, actually. These people keep coming up in these stories. Joab's brother. Who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? So David has this plan to sneak into the camp. I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground, boom, near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. So, now, do not ask me. 
it will be made clear how they could sneak into the camp because that's what they've done. They've gone to the edge of the camp and they have snuck into the camp and they have gone to where Saul is lying there, Abner's with him, Saul's spear is stuck in the ground and they're sound asleep, just dozing away. Probably snoring, but you know, there we go. So Ab Abishai, one of David's fighters, says to him, oh man, wow, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. You're standing, now he's right here. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike him twice. One time, boom, that'll be all it takes. Boom, My, I got a spear, I'm ready to go. Right? Wow. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. Don't kill him. Who can lay a hand on Yahweh's anointed and be guiltless? We've seen David display this attitude before. Yeah, second time. Second time. And really throughout this, he knows that Saul is king. He knows that Saul has been anointed. And he will not strike down Saul. So David goes on, As surely as Yahweh lives, David said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come, and he will die, or he will go into battle, and he will perish. But Yahweh forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. However, <laughs> get the spear and the water jug that are right there by his head, and let's go. So, they just, so David keeps them from killing, keeps Abishai. This is only like David and Abishai, right? That's the two of them. So Abishai gets the water jug and the spear, and they sneak back out of the camp. So David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because, I love this, because, see, the book's answering the question I couldn't, because Yahweh had put them into a deep sleep. So God has intervened in this particular case. Don't ask me why sometimes and not other times. I don't know. I'm not God. But in this case, God is, has put the camp to sleep, allowing David to sneak in, and has kept the camp asleep, so that David and Abishai can exit, can leave. Well, David crossed over, in verse 13, David crossed over to the other side, and he stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them, but as you'll see, it's still within earshot. He called out to the army, this is Saul's army, and to Abner, son of Ner, and he says, aren't you going to answer me, Abner? And Abner shakes himself awake, I guess, and he replies, Who are you? Who calls to the king? And David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? You're Abner, dude. You're Abner. Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What you've done is not good. As surely as... Yahweh lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed, as in Saul. 
Look around you. Where are the king's spear and the king's water jug that were near his head? And you can imagine Abner's shaking the sleep off and he looks around and the spear and the jug are gone. And he's going, oh, what has happened? And Abner's the one in charge. He is the one in charge. Well, now Saul's waking up. Saul recognized David's voice and he said, Is that your voice, David, my son? And David replied, Yes, it is, my lord, the king. And then David added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? It's the same question posed outside the cave. You know, obviously these stories, similar, different, however they are, they are really important to the storyteller. Because the people who wrote and edited and compiled this, I mean, they know what they're doing. They have a plan. They, they know what they want to do. So obviously this co confrontation between Saul and David is really key to the writer, to understanding David at this point in his life and understanding Saul. So David says, what have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my Lord the King listen to his servant's words. If Yahweh has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, May they be cursed before Yahweh. They have driven me today from my share in Yahweh's inheritance, which means he's being driven away from the family of Israel. That's what that means. It's not a money inheritance from Pops, from Jesse. It's being cut off from the family of Israel. They have driven me today from my share in Yahweh's inheritance and have said, Go! serve other gods because that's all that's out there if david is chased out of israel and chased out of the family of god's people and chased away from the tabernacle and all that's out there are other gods there is no at this point there is no way to worship yahweh apart from god's people apart from the tabernacle and the, the, the priests and the whole, the whole thing. And so David says, Now do, lot, do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of Yahweh. For the Israelites, God's presence was found in the tabernacle. The great image of this is at the end of the book of Exodus when the tabernacle has been completed at the foot of Mount Sinai and the presence of God, which is the cloud and stuff on top of the Mount, of Mount Sinai, comes down and it descends and falls upon the tabernacle. And God's presence is so intense, it fills the tabernacle such that Moses can't even go in. The, the, the most standard word for the presence of God with them as the Shekinah, the Shekinah, 
the Shekinah of God descends upon the tabernacle. And so David, if he's cut off from the family of the Israelites, they are a family, they are a blood family. They, are, they have the blood of Abraham flowing through their veins, their brothers and sisters and cousins, first, second, third, fourth. They're a family in that way. If he's cut off, right, he will not share in the presence of God. You know, when I say something like that, it illustrates how much things changed with Jesus, really, right? I mean, Jesus changed everything. Everything. That's, what, that's the point Paul makes. He says, he refers to the, to the church, the body of Christ, as God's temple because the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in the church. But he says, each of us, as persons, as individuals, is a temple of God, which means what for Paul? That God's presence, the Holy Spirit, dwells in each of us as persons. And the, these folks have no idea of such a thing being conceivable, much less possible. So he says in verse 20, Now do, do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of Yahweh. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea. I'm a, David's, David's a flea, he says. I'm just this guy with some other guys. We're just out in the mountains. We're not even doing anything to you. You're hunting a flea. The same way you might go out and hunt for a partridge in the mountains or something. Sort of like, like what are, why are you doing this? So, then Saul said, I have sinned. And you hope that in this moment, he is he has put himself back in the presence of God. We might say we hope he's in his right mind, but I, I think his, he, he has these periods where he is spiritually apart from God. And why I, you know, I, I'd like to hope that in this moment he is being sincere that it's not a ploy. Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Now, notice that David... David doesn't really trust Saul with this, right? Remember at the cave, Saul gets out and he goes a distance away and then David emerges. We're told again there's a nice distance between them here because David, David doesn't go over and crawl into the camp and wake up Saul and say, hey man, I'm a flea, why are you chasing me? David only does it from a distance, which is the practical thing to do, right? It is a, how might we put it? What we were talking about earlier, it's a concession to sinfulness. You know, we, we can't look, we can't, we can't look at somebody's heart. 
We can't really peer inside somebody's mind. We can look at what they do. This was something the ancients understood. I mean, they could, they could try to infer aims or goals from what a person did, but they weren't under any illusion about being able to peer inside a person. Nowadays, we have all sorts of beliefs about we can peer inside everybody. You can, you can pick up a, you know, a psychological biography of somebody who lived decades ago that somebody's writing today, thinking that they could peer inside that person's heart and brain and figure them out. When in truth, I think, I have trouble enough peering inside my own mind and heart. We have to look at what people's aims are. So, Saul promises that he, was, he is not going to harm David, that he's acted like a fool. He's been terribly wrong, but you read it and you kind of think, man, what is going to happen when Saul drifts away again and descends into this spiritual darkness? When he was picking up spears, this is chapters ago, years ago, he's picking up spears and throwing them at David, the little musician guy, playing his, you know, his lyre, his guitar. So, David said, here is the king's spear. Let one of your young men come over and get it. Another interesting thing. One of your young men come over and get this. Yahweh, Yahweh rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. That's such a good verse. Righteousness and faithfulness. Which one of those mean? Doing right. And where do... from? From whom do we learn what is right? God. You're not going to find those answers within yourselves, and you're not going to find them anywhere in truth besides God. God is the fountain of, of righteousness, of teaching us what it, of what right is. Thou shalt not murder. Honor your mother and father. Don't bear false witness, right? Take care of the widows and the orphans. Let justice roll like, like streams of water just, just flowing downhill. And faithfulness. What does faithfulness mean? It means to, it means to be trustworthy. It's an important, there's, there's a lot of untrustworthiness in our world. I guess there always has been. I don't know. I, I sometimes wonder if some of my perspective about things today is driven because of the fact that now I'm one of those old geezers, you know, that I saw when I was a kid. But trustworthiness is, is so important. And here's the thing about trust or trustworthiness. It's fragile. You might spend a long time building up a level of trust with someone and it can be shattered in a moment, maybe never to be re rebuilt again. It's very, it, it's, it's like that. It's very fragile, but it can't be built quickly. So being a faithful person means being wise about the promises that you make, 
but then keeping those promises. So, the Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and their faithfulness. Yahweh delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on Yahweh's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may Yahweh value my life and deliver me from trouble. Right? In that, it's a moment of prayer, beseeching God. Say, you know, yes, I spared your life today, so I could have killed you back there, but I didn't. And so may God smile on me is another thing I guess we might say. So Saul says to David, May you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. Hmm. See, what an odd thing for Saul to say, right? What triumph has to lie before David, who is God's anointed himself? The supplanting of Saul. You will do great things, Saul says. You will surely triumph. Triumph. So David went on his way, and Saul returned home. So this current hunt for David is over. And it's gone on for a while that David's been out there. So what kind of thoughts or questions do you all have about that particular story? Yes, sir. And so what? Troubling. How so? In that, David says, the Lord delivered me to you. He, he said that twice. So he said that the Lord gave Saul to David. Well, that David says, the Lord delivered me to you. Where, where, which verse are you looking at there? Del in other words, delivered Saul into David's hands. Yes. And what would David then do? That was the question, and David spared Saul's life. Yeah. But is the Lord saying, David, take care of this. Take care of Saul, the problem. You know? So is, is David going against the will of the Lord here? What would be God's will in this case? Would God's will, do you think, be that um, David would put a spear th into Saul's head. Is he testing David? Is he testing David? See, maybe, maybe that. Um, I again, I don't know. The way David sees this is that God has now again, almost in a sense, offered Saul to David, and so in that sense, it's a test that David passes. Because he doesn't murder Saul. He doesn't kill Saul. He spares Saul's life. And God is the life giver. Okay? Um, so that's the way I see it. And of course, in the ancient world, God is the cause of everything that happens. It's never happenstance. Right? It rains today because the gods make it rain today. It doesn't rain tomorrow because God says no rain today. I mean, that's kind of the world, that's kind of how their head is wired. Um, but in this case, I, I, I think that it's just so striking 
what happens that David understands properly that Saul has basically been presented to him, what will you do, David? And David spares him, you know, which in the ancient world is really quite an act. And you know, Abishai's shocked. Abishai was ready to put that spear through Saul's head, right? This is not, Abishai, I, he doesn't say much, but he could say, come on, David, that's not how this world works. Let me tell you how this world works. Your enemy's laying right there. You got to get rid of him right now. You're not going to get another chance like this. Grow up, buddy. Get rid of that soft heart. But David won't do it. And why do, does it, why won't David kill Saul? What? He knows his time will come. He's not God's anointed. I mean, he, Saul is God's anointed. It's really that anointing by God. God, God picks Saul. And so David won't kill Saul for that reason. David doesn't mind killing people, as we're soon to see. We're, we're, I mean, we're going to see like today. Okay, I think. Yes. I also think it's a sign of a righteous person that he could walk away from a golden opportunity that he's had. Now, well, you see, so, so, I mean, I think you're right that, that Abishai, for Abishai, this is a golden opportunity to get rid of the guy who's hunting you down to kill you. For David, he does the right thing. He won't take this life. And it would be it would be murder. Would it not be murder to kill Saul while he is sleeping? It's a different thing if they were fighting. But they're not fighting. Saul's sound asleep, a sleep that God put him into. And he's just laying there, just nothing but a fat old target. Maybe he's not fat, but you know. He does look like Aston after all. But he's laying there out of it, just nothing but a target. So, okay, yes. Let's take Saul's point of view. I mean, here he's lying, as you say, that dumb and happy asleep. And here's somebody often that could kill him and doesn't, which in the point, from Saul's point of view, he says, this guy's not going to kill me. And he feels much safer. So the point, Don's point is that because David spared Saul's life, Saul feels safer. The funny thing is, he never needed to feel unsafe. Well, he, was jealous. he was jealous. Right, and so so we'll we'll see in the next few chapters what happens with Saul. But but you know, things have have changed a bit here. Yes, Mike. Yeah, let's talk about this phrase, a man after God's own heart. Because when you look over the course of David's life, he does some pretty terrible things. And it, you, if you really read them honestly, you're left wondering, well, where is that? And when I was working on that early section, because that comes from the anointing time of David, you know, Several commentators said the Hebrew isn't really saying that he, David, has like the character of God or the heart. It is saying that he has God's choice. 
He is God's choice. He is a man after God's own heart. He is, he is the choice that God's heart has made. I kind of... What appeals to me about that understanding of the phrase is that I, it gets me out of how could David do this and be a man after God's own heart. But I know what the, the traditional way of understanding it is, but it's, it presents this to me, this unsolvable problem about David. And the traditional way of reconciling it is to see that David is a man who does terrible, terrible things, but repents of them. He repents of them. Um, but even then, <laughs> I don't know. But thank you, Mike. That's, that's, that's always, always to be wrestled with. So, anything else? Okay, well, let's go on, and we'll see what David does. Uh, now that Saul has said, hey, you're okay, man, I'm heading home. Is David going to head home? No. Do you think he trusts Saul at this point? No. I don't think so. Verse 27, look at the, chapter 27, look at the first word. But. But. <laughs> but. David thought to himself, well, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Because, of course, the experience with the spears and chucking and all that, that's all right there with him. But, I know it's coming. One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. The Philistines. Remember the Israelites are concentrated here. The Philistines over toward the Mediterranean. There are five large, um, semi-large, kind of Philistine cities. Gath is one of them. Ashkelon, three others. So, the best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So he's basically going to go to the Philistines for refuge, right? Sanctuary. So David and the 600 men with him left, and they went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. Aha! There's Gath, right there. Woohoo! Okay, Gath. What? Goliath was Philistine. You know, you might think they're going to look at him suspiciously, right? Yeah, you might. Well, indeed. I mean, the Philistines are the enemies of Israel right now. They're the focus. They're the focus. They're, they're, it, the Israelites have troubles with other peoples. But the Philistines are the big dog. He says, the best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. So, verse 2. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives. So this is like... 1,200, 1,500 people because they got wives, they got children, they got their families. They're going to make, they're going to make a life over here with the Philistines. David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of the fool. 
Nabal, right? When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Well, yeah, he's out of my clutches now. I'm not going to Gath. Sure. So David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me as one of the country in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave David Ziklag, another name that just rolls off the tongue. So here is Ziklag. I know you can find it on the map, but I love using this thing. There's Ziklag right there. We think, because this could be Ziklag right here. Why don't we know? Because it's 3,000 years ago. And none of these places were that substantial. Populations were small. You're not going to know anything until you do archaeological digs for most of this stuff, and that costs a lot of money. So of all the possible archaeological digging you could do in this area, they've only done a small part, and of that small part that they've dug in, they've only been able to work on, actually work on, a small part of that. So it's just how it is. Now, but it's still all Philistine. That's the thing. Yes, but it's it the, the it's really not very far. The distances. This is very compact, but but this is that's all Philistine area. There are five five cities, five major Philistine cities, and sure. And actually, since we're not sure whether Ziklag is here or Ziklag is there, it could be up there, right? We don't know. But it has a very catchy name. <laughs> Ziklag. <sighs> so, verse 6. <laughs> Not, yeah. So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. Well, that's interesting. Okay. David lived in Philistine territory one year and four months. That's interesting. That's a very specific thing, isn't it? That's a very specific time reference. Uh, it's certainly conveying to us that this is not a sojourn of a few months, that this is there, there a good while. A year and four months to take us all, all the way past, all the way into the end of next summer. I count my life by Texas summers, just so you know. Okay, now David and his men went up and raided the Gersherites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. These are neighboring people who are not Philistines. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extended to Shur in Egypt. In other words, they're kind of probably nomadic and they're moving around in the area between Israel and Egypt. Because if you go this direction, right, you're going to hit you're going to hit the Sinai Peninsula and continue on. You're going to run into Egypt. Well, verse 9. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive. You see? Is there any condemnation of this? Does but he took the sheep and the cattle and the donkeys and the camels and the clothes. Then he returned to Achish. 
there is in the law of Moses the practice of harem, H-E-R-E-M, the ban. And it is that which um, Saul was supposed to do, which was to destroy everything conquered. And it took away any chance for profit. Here, though, David doesn't do that. He's not instructed to do any of this. He just does it. He, he attacks these villages, these probably small places. He takes everything they have, their sheep and their cattle, their donkeys and camels and clothes, and he kills everybody in the village or the town. You see, this is why I struggle. When we understand it to be um, David's heart has the character of God or something. Because by my reckoning, you know, reading the Bible in the light of Jesus, this is a terrible thing. But, you know, he's not condemned here. This is, a, this is the ancient world. Life was cheap, 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 cheap. Cheap, cheap, cheap. Cheap. Really. Yeah? Yeah, I don't think. I think he just took all the, just killed all the men and all the women and killed all the people and took all the stuff that could be helpful to him. I mean, by my money, David does, this is not where, this is not David coming out well in this. So let's watch what he does. When Achish asks, well, where did you go raiding today? David would say, because he would probably ask that by the king once in a while when they would meet, he would say, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of Jeremiah. What he is talking about, he is saying that he is raiding the cities of Judah, towns of Judah, when he's not. It's a lie. He's, he wants the king to believe that he's attacking his fellow Israelites because the largest tribe is the tribe of Judah. Right? So it's a lie. He's not attacking the, tribes, the tribe of Judah or any Judah towns or Judah villages. He's attacking these other people. But he wants the king to think that he's attacking the Israelites. Why would he want the king to think that he's attacking Israelites of some stripe? Find favor with Achish. Sure, he's cast his lot. He's in there. He's found sanctuary with the Philistines. So he tells the king, no, this is where I've been. This is what I've been doing. You know, I am on your team. I've been attacking your enemies. So he says, I've um, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of Jeremel or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath. For he thought they might inform on us. You see, there's the answer. He doesn't leave a person alive in these towns because he wants to lie about all of it. <sighs> Do you think that pleases God? No. Do you think that would please Jesus? No. You said that with more fervor. But you shouldn't say it with more fervor because Jesus is fully and completely God. Whatever you would say about God, you can say about Jesus. If it wouldn't please Jesus, it wouldn't please God because Jesus is God. Right? So that's, 
That's kind of what it means to read this in the light of Jesus, the full revelation of who God is. I don't think God is pleased with this. Does, is this condemned in the text? Does the writer condemn this? No. The writer probably does. He's just telling you what happened. And it probably, there's just, again, in Jesus' day, people went to arenas to watch people kill each other. Think about that for a minute. I, I remember when I was in elementary school, a teacher had gone, like maybe fourth grade or something, had gone and taken vacation and gone to a bullfight in Spain. She couldn't stay in it. She told us that it was the most awful, disgusting thing that she had ever, ever seen was the killing of this bull. Well, imagine that the arena is not focused on the killing of a bull, but is focused on the killing of people by gladiators or gladiators fighting each other to death or people who are having to fight off wild animals, tiger, fall for the crowd's amusement. That's Jesus' day. This is a thousand years before. People were lives were just so cheap and they weren't valued. This is one of the this is one of the great things that the Christians brought to the world. The Christians invented hospitals. The Christians were the ones who began sitting by the bedside of strangers, which hadn't wasn't done. You might sit by the bedside of your family member and risk getting sick, but <coughs> You didn't do it for strangers. That's insane. But the Christians did it in those first centuries. The Christians brought, really, the Jews, really God brought it through the Jews, but they, they became very insular. And, and um, it's, 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 the world just changed immensely with the coming of, of Christ. So, wow, he did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is actually what David did. He's been lying to you. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory, which now we know is how long? A year and four months. Achish trusted David. He doesn't realize David's been lying to him. And said to himself, he has become so obnoxious. He smells so bad He's to his people. He's obnoxious to his people. So obnoxious to people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. So when David comes into town and he wants to ingratiate himself to the Philistines and King Achish in particular, he is successful with that. But he does it by, by, by killing and then lying about it and killing utterly everybody so that his secret is kept. You know, it's... I think 
people end up, very often have a two-dimensional view of David. He's very, he's a very complex man. I guess we all are, but David is, is, is there's these opposite ends of David. The righteousness and faithfulness and then the killing and wait till we get to Bathsheba and Uriah and you're trying to reconcile all of this in David. It's, it's, it's something. And I think it's, you know what, and if, if you read about David in the book of Chronicles, you would find that a lot of this stuff is all cleaned up. It's in Samuel that you get the real skinny about this. The, the, the full three-dimensional complex David. So, wow. Wow. But he has a gracious himself to Achish. Achish thinks he's got him for life. So, what do you think is going to come next? What's Achish going to want to do now? Go attack the Israelis. Yeah, the Israelites. Go attack the Israelites. Expecting who to participate? Yeah. The Lord's anointed as the king of Israel. Wow, who could write this stuff? Right? <laughs> so anyway, wow, okay, very good. Any closing thoughts or reflections or questions today? Okay, we're going to stop there, of course. Yes? Now, were we talking about like back in the Goliath time? Yes. When okay. David went in. And killed Goliath. No, no. Killed the Philistines. You mean like we were... Places. Okay. Yeah. The, these places, these are not Philistines he's killing. Oh, okay. These are, these are, these, these are these folks. The Amalekites. The Gerzites. It's these folks that he's killing. But he's claiming to be over here attacking Judah's towns and villages filled with Israelites in order because he could be doing this and admit it but it wouldn't be as powerful a way to ingratiate himself with the Philistine king Achish as it is to go and attack David's own people you see yeah yeah, yep, 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 no problem. The, the, the names are all so weird. Yeah, anything else? Okay, well, let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, keep us from ever turning the people we meet in Scripture into two-dimensional felt figures. We, we, we're, we're inclined to do it, for so many of us, you know, our exposure to much of this ended in the fifth or sixth grade, really. And, and we even do it with Jesus. But let us, let us understand that, that David is a fully figured, complex person, um, as indeed we all are. And David is capable of being both righteous and 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 doing terrible things and it's uh
reflection that help remind us it's a reflection that indeed all of us, David including, need a savior, a rescuer, a redeemer. And we are grateful for the gift of your holy son, Jesus, who indeed is that savior for us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.